And two, uh, this is our third Sunday in the series, Be Like Jesus, which I know sounds impossible. Who can be like Jesus? But he gives us resources, right? Jesus walks with us. Well, we have the filling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have God's word available to us. And so we dare to imagine ourselves being like Jesus. Uh, we have a theme verse for this series. It's actually just part of a verse. Um, it's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, I follow the example of Christ. Will you say that with me? I follow the example of Christ. And now we're, we're Jesus followers. This is, this is kind of like our motto. We get up in the morning thinking, okay, Lord help me. I follow the example of Christ. Uh, and today, we're going to continue learning about that, learning how to do that, and especially how to show grace like Jesus did. Uh, years ago, I was uh, acquainted with a, a gentleman named Herb, and Herb devoted his life to bringing Christ to two groups of people. Uh, he spent a great time, a deal of time at the unicameral meeting with our state senators, engaging in conversations with them, uh, listening to them, sharing with them, praying for them, praying with them, being a friend. And he did the same at the state penitentiary. So he was, spent his time ministering to two groups of people, felons and senators. And I'm not drawing any comparisons between the two, okay? Not at all. Now, Jesus was kind of that way. Uh, you know, last week, if you were here, uh, we found him dining at the home of one of people that considered the worst kind of sinners, tax collectors. Uh, and this tax collector's name was Levi, also known as Matthew, who was the author or the primary source of the gospel that bears his name. And by the way, if you missed last Sunday, uh, that message, you can watch it on our website or on our Facebook page or right on our app and by the way, it wasn't working last week, but you can watch the messages on the app now. Uh, but Jesus is an equal opportunity eater. He also dines with Pharisees. They are the really serious, super serious group. They keep every religious law and all of the rules that go with it. Uh, for example, you know the Ten Commandments say uh, that you shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Well, the teachers of the law came up with a bunch of rules to really strictly define that of all the things you could and could not do on the Sabbath. For example, there was a limit to how far you could walk on the Sabbath. And it was uh, 2,000 cubits, which turns out to be about uh, two-thirds of a mile. Uh, and and there, were, there were thousands and thousands of these rules that the, the Pharisees followed because they took God and sin seriously. Well, one day, Jesus and his disciples are invited to the home of, of a Pharisee named Simon. Uh, I'm sure Simon's family are there, a bunch of his friends are there, so there's a lot of people coming and going, and they're seated for dinner. The Bible says that they're reclining, which I know sounds kind of odd to us. I think I'm leaning up on the recliner with the remote, you know, but it wasn't like that. It was a uh, they, they were kind of probably had cushions on the floor, and they, they would uh, kind of lay on the side with leaning on their left elbow. Their, their legs would be kind of off to the, the side this way, and then they could eat with their right hands. Anyway, a woman uh, from that town learns that Jesus 
is coming to Simon's house, so she shows up. Uh, now, it, in that passage that Becky just read for us, she's described as a sinful woman. What was her sin? It doesn't say. Whatever she's done, she has got, earned quite a reputation. Some uh, scholars suggest she was a prostitute. That's possible. Uh, you know, this last week I've been reading in the book of Proverbs. And uh, just amazed how frequently young men are expressly uh, warned to stay away from a certain kind of woman. And that's the woman who cheats on her husband and she is in the continual habit of seducing men. She brings them into her bed like lambs being led to the slaughter. An ancient Jewish culture considered this to this kind of sin to be worse than prostitution. Now, was this the sin of the woman who showed up that day at the house of Simon the Pharisee? I don't know. If I had to rank all of the possibilities, I would probably put it at the top. Now, when I read this passage, I realize that the gospel writer Luke gives us only part of the story, it appears to me that this woman must have had some kind of contact with Jesus prior to showing up at Simon's house. Like what? What happened? I don't know. But there is a story about Jesus that could serve as an illustration of, of what might have happened, what could have happened. Uh, it's one of the most famous stories about Jesus. You remember the one where, where the Pharisees and the teachers bring a woman before Jesus who's caught in the act of adultery? Some of you know that story. Well, I want to retell that story, but first I need to tell you something about it you may not know. In most translations today, if you go to the beginning of John chapter 8, you won't find that story in the regular text. It might be down in the footnotes. It might be in brackets on the page. And that's because this story is not found in most ancient gospel manuscripts. It appears to have been inserted later. Another fascinating fact in, in this, these later manuscripts where it does appear is that it's not always in the same place. Some have it there at the beginning of John 8. Some of it have it later in John's gospel. There are even some ancient manuscripts that have it in Luke's gospel. Same thing, stuck somewhere else. This is the only story about Jesus uh, that appears to be in the Gospels that appears to be what one scholar calls a free-floating tradition. My opinion from the scholars that I've read is that it represents something historical about Jesus but it's not strictly a part of our New Testament. Does that make sense? It represents something that's very likely historical about Jesus but it's not really a part of our New Testament scripture. So uh, today I'm using that uh, as the kind of thing that might have happened before, before the scene at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Anyway, in that story, uh, the woman is brought before the court at the temple, being charged with, you know, being caught in the act of adultery. Obviously, there's some scheme and double standard going on because where's the guy, you know? She had adultery with. And they, and, and they asked Jesus, okay, Jesus, 
What do you think that we should do? Should we stone her as the law of Moses demands? What's Jesus going to do if he says no to the stoning? They'll accuse him of not following God's law. If he says yes to stoning, they can get him in trouble with the Romans because, the Ro because Rome didn't allow the Jews to carry out capital punishment. So Jesus says to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. According to the law of Moses, the first person to throw a stone is supposed to be a witness to the crime, and this witness must have no responsibility in the sin, no culpability in the crime. By saying this, Jesus is questioning their motives. He exposes the fact that they have set her up. They're using her to trap him. And one by one, all of the Pharisees and the teachers drop their rocks and walk away. Well, during that time, Jesus is bent down on the ground, riding with his finger in the dirt. Whatever that was about, we're not sure. When he gets up, he, he asks the woman, where did they go? Is no one left to condemn you? And she says, no one, no one, sir. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Can you imagine her relief? In this moment where you think you're going to die? You've been set up. You've been dragged out. You, people are holding rocks in your face. Can you imagine how much appreciation she must have for Jesus? How much fondness, affection, how much love she has for him? Now, I don't know the backstory of the woman who showed up in Simon's house, but I wonder if it was something like that. Jesus stands up for her. He doesn't condemn her. He keeps others from condemning her, and she is set free, free to go. And by grace, she's empowered to leave her life of sin. So, she shows up at Simon's house, bottle of perfume in hand, and she goes to Jesus at the table. And she gets on her knees at his, at his feet, and at that point, she is just overcome with emotion. I mean, I, don't, I'm, I imagine she didn't expect to be this, for it to happen like this. She's just overcome with emotion, She's so thankful, so relieved, so overwhelmed because of what Jesus has done for her. And she begins weeping. And not just, you know, a tear rolling down the cheek. This is just full-on sobbing. A flood of tears, so much so that Jesus' feet get wet. And when she realizes, oh no, I just got Jesus' feet all wet. What's going on? You know, she impulsively wants to fix it. And what, what, what can she do? So she does something that would be considered highly improper for a woman to do in public. She lets down her hair. 
And she uses her hair like a towel to dry his feet. And I just got to say, if I were in Jesus' spot like that, I would be totally embarrassed. I mean, what's she doing? You know, this woman of ill repute, she shows up, you know, she, she, she bursts into the party, she's, she's weeping and wiping on me, and she, she makes me the object of her affection, she's kissing my feet. Awkward. <laughs> now, personally, I'm not a big fan of people even touching my feet. You know? I think they're, they're kind of ticklish. I can't help it. I'd say, please, please stop. <laughs> uh, go away. This is inappropriate. I'm feeling very uncomfortable with this. But man, I think that's one of the amazing things is Jesus lets her do it. He lets her express her gratitude in the way she knows how. And he lets her pour some of her fancy perfume on his feet. The host, Simon the Pharisee, is outraged. Jesus cannot be a prophet of God or he wouldn't let this happen, this, this show. But Jesus defends the woman and explains why he lets her carry on this way. Now, normally when I would preach on this passage, I talk about the woman's extravagant display of affection, which is, Jesus says is a, is a sign that her many sins are forgiven. And, and when we realize that our many sins are forgiven, then, it, then we're, we respond with great love for Jesus. But today, I want to look at it from a different point of view. Because today, we're learning to be like Jesus. So today, we're trying to identify with his viewpoint in this story. Now, there, there's one thing uh, on which Simon, the woman, and, and Jesus all agree, and that's this point here. All three agree that sin is sin. I know that seems like a truism and obvious, but I don't know that it really, you know, maybe it needs to be heard today. Uh, nobody then was saying that what she did, whatever it was, was not a sin. Nobody is saying that, well, you know, this was just her lifestyle. Nobody's saying that, well, it doesn't really matter what you do. She sinned. She sinned against others. She sinned against herself. She sinned against God. Now, Simon's response is way different than Jesus' response. Simon shames her. He shuns her. He didn't want anything to do with her. Get this lady out of my house. Jesus stands up for her. So I thought of this. To show grace like Jesus did, I must not ruin being right by acting wrong. And I see that happen a lot. People who ruin being right by acting wrong. Simon, he's right about her sin, but he's dead wrong in his response. You know, sometimes we Christians are like that. I mean, I mean, people, they, 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 we know right and wrong, and sometimes we decide that it's our job to point that out to everybody. For example, I know Christians who are dead set against tattoos. If they see a tattoo, especially if you're in church, 
They're going to point a finger in your face and quote Leviticus 19.28, which says not to put tattoos on your body. Let me tell you, we Christians have to be super careful about applying Old Testament laws. Leviticus 19.28 was given because people back then from other nations put tattoos of their idols on their bodies. Now here's something I want you to remember when you read the Bible. Unless an Old Testament command is reaffirmed in the New Testament, it does not apply to people who follow Jesus. What do you think of that? I believe it's true. Unless an Old Testament command is reaffirmed in the New Testament, it doesn't apply to, to people who follow Jesus. Now, personally, I don't have a tattoo. Never really appealed to me. But if you have a tat, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I've been thinking in the last year about getting one. I, I, I've talked to my family about it. My idea, I have, I've, had, I, I've got it all figured out. If I get one, what it's going to be. And I'm not telling you. <laughs> all right? So let, let's think of another situation. Uh, scripture, including the New Testament, teaches that the, sacred, um, the sacredness of sexual union needs to be expressed within the covenant of marriage. That means having sex when you're not married is a sin. Now, I would say it's not maybe quite as bad a sin as adultery. I think there are levels of sin, but it's still sin. And there are a number of ways to leave that sin behind. One way is if, this, if you realize this relationship you're in is never going to uh, be going into the covenant of marriage, let it go. Another way is to continue the relationship but refrain from sexual union until after the wedding. Yet another way is to get married right away and bring sexual union within the covenant of marriage. And I've seen couples do all three. But a lot of people live together before they get married. A lot of you did. Uh, some of you do now. Uh, and if I'm going to be like Jesus, then I need to show grace. My job is to love people like Jesus loved them. Jesus didn't scold sinners. He forgave them. To show grace like Jesus did, I must not ruin being right by acting wrong. You see? And here's another thing we learned from Jesus. To show grace like Jesus did, I must focus on the person, not their sin. Let's say it together, shall we? To show grace like Jesus did, I must focus on the person, not their sin. And that's what Jesus did, right? He focused on the person, not her problem. He focused on her need, not her sin. He focused on helping... Uh, he focused on helping her move forward, not punishing her for her past. Jesus knew that the power of sin and shame can be broken when God's love is received. Isn't that right? The power of sin and shame can be broken when God's love is received. Um, I want to invite Beth Norris to uh, come up and share with us a little bit here this morning. And uh, 
recently, Beth saw that uh, the, the uh, theme for today and said, I, I might have something to share. And I, I kind of knew already a little bit about this story, but we got together and, and uh, uh, kind of went over it a little bit more. And I said, I would love to have this you share. And, uh, but it's not easy. Um, Beth, um, I know that nearly three and a half years ago, your life changed forever. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit what happened? Um, three and a half years ago, my uh, youngest son, Nate Lefebvre, was killed in a car accident. Um, he and his girlfriend and another friend were on their way to Vallis Pumpkin Patch, and they had the accident out there on Highway 370 and 180th Street. And uh, he, he died in that accident. You know, I, after you kind of reminded me of the location, I recalled, oh, yes, I remember that. I, I remember that there was a, a high school student that died there and that that was sort of the, the reason that kind of moved things to get a, a traffic light put up at that intersection. And, and can, you, can you tell us about how did you find out? What, what happened? Yeah. Um, my ex-husband actually got a call from the hospital that there was an accident and we needed to come down. And so I got, I got down there um, before anybody else did. And at this point, you didn't really know the outcome? No, right? no, they were just really vague okay. and stuff. So um, I got down there and um, the young gal, the sheriff's deputy, is the one who told me that um, there had been an accident and that Maddie and Carly had been critically injured and that Nate did not survive the accident. Yeah. Hmm. I, I can't imagine the, the, the thoughts that roll around in your mind at that time, but, but one of them had to do with what Nate's role was in all of that. Can you want to tell us about that? Sure. Um, at the time, Nate was a um, sophomore at a Mount Michael High School, and because it's a rural school, we could get him a school permit. So he was 15, but had a school permit and had a car that he could drive, and we were a little loose with those privileges, and I knew he had driven it out to Maddie's house that night because they were going to the pumpkin patch. Yeah. And um, so the biggest fear then that crossed my mind was, was Nate the one that was driving? I mean, yeah. how am I gonna face these parents that my 15-year-old was possibly the one driving and caused this horrible accident and their kids are in such terrible shape? Yeah. And I'm sure not even knowing whether they would survive at this point, right. yeah. So, um, and, uh, but then you, you learned how, what had transpired. Yes. Shortly the, after that. Yeah, the, uh, the sheriff's deputy told me that Maddie had been the one driving. Um, she, was, she was on 180th and trying to cross 370 and, and ended up pulling in front of a vehicle that, that hit them. Yeah, very, very wide intersection and a lot mm -hmm. to, to try to look at and keep track of. And, right. And uh, now, so, so you, you learned that Maddie was driving, that Nate had been killed in the accident, and then something happened. God kind of stepped in. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah. Um, then we were finally um, brought back to the room to see Nate's body and, uh, you know, seeing him dead there on the gurney. And uh, we, we then wanted to go up and see uh, Maddie's family. 
Um, we knew they were up in the ICU. So we were walking down the long hallway from the ER to the elevators and stuff. And it was just the most amazing experience. I mean, it's, it was it was the Holy Spirit. I mean, I was just literally just, it just all rushed in, you know, just this intense feeling, just I could physically feel it rush into me. Wow. And, and, it, and it was, I could no longer do anything for my son, Nate, but I could certainly do everything for Maddie to help her recover and get through this. So that was kind of the message that went along with this powerful physical, emotional feeling was just sort of this, this very clear message. Right. You know, and any of us who have been parents, you know, you do anything and everything for your kids and everything to protect them and stuff, you know, so it just blew my mind, you know, that this just came to me because that is just not the normal mom response. No, that's to, not instinctive, is no, it? No, uh -uh. not at all. And so what happened after that? Um, well, we got up there and we got to see uh, Maddie's family and, you know, had to tell them about Nate and everything and, and be with them. And, and um, we just, we stuck together. Um, yeah. You know, Maddie had this long physical and emotional recovery. She was down at Madonna Hospital down in Lincoln for um, several weeks uh -huh. recovering physically. And she had, um, her family had just been in Mexico the week before, and she brought Nate a t-shirt back. So I had one of my girlfriends sew that into a pillowcase, and I got a new pillow, and I took it down to Maddie to have in the hospital while she was recovering. So she had something of Nate's to be with her. Yeah. And then even later on, um, the uh, Sarpy County attorney decided to file uh, motor vehicle homicide charges mm -hmm. against Maddie. Um, he did file them in juvenile court. and. Um, how did you feel about that? Uh, just livid. My ex-husband and I were just livid. I mean, because it, it, was, it was just an accident. Yeah. It was just an accident. Um, you know, because there was absolutely nothing else involved. No alcohol, no drugs, no cell phone use. It was literally just an accident. But they were going forward with it, so part of the court thing was she was going to have to do some kind of community service project. Mm -hmm. So we worked together with her family. Nate was an avid reader, so he came up with books for Nate. Okay. And so we collected books. She collected books in his honor, and we donated those to the Junior League to hand out to kids who don't have books. But even the day of the court hearing, I mean, I was there. I was there right beside her, and when we were all finished, the press was outside, you know, wanting questions, you know, ask questions. And I had a prepared statement that, you know, this is not what we wanted. Um, absolutely not what we wanted and that I, you know, we stood by Maddie a hundred percent and, um, you know, she's forever a part of us because of this. Now you said forever a part of us. So you mean you still have contact with Maddie then? Oh yeah. Apparently? Yeah. You know, we still kept in regular contact and like that fall, um, the following fall was getting close to the one year anniversary. And one night, um, Maddie's mom texted me that Maddie was having a hard night. And I'm like, well, I'm here on the couch full of tears having a hard night, too. Yeah. So Maddie and one of her friends and Maddie's mom and I, the four of us, went to one of those indoor trampoline places. Uh. <laughs> and just kind of bounced off some of our, you know, tears and everything and just had a good time together. Yeah, yeah. But what an experience. I mean, this is, you know, this is a, this is a, 
God thing. This is a, a kind of a miracle thing in your life to be able to, to, to show grace beyond what humanly we could be possible to do. Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, the first step was, you know, for me to think that Nate was the driver and, you know, how could I ask these parents to forgive him? And, you know, so that's what I wanted for my son, so I had to give it to their daughter and then to send mm. the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, I mean, I still can't even put words to what that really, really felt like when that absolutely happened. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing. I know that some of you have lost a child and uh, you need support. You need people around you. And uh, I would just say that maybe some of you would like to talk with Beth, maybe today or some other time. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I know some of you have been hurt by Christians. And they were so sure that they were right. And maybe they were. But they were, they were wrong to leave out grace. They were wrong to leave out grace. You've been criticized. You've been coerced. You've been corrected. And finally you just said, that's enough. I can't take this anymore. If this is what Christians are like, then count me out. And I just want to say, I'm sorry. We need your grace. And we all need Jesus' grace. And so today I invite you to respond to grace. Maybe you've been a judgmental Christian. There's grace for you. Maybe you've been hiding a secret sin. There's grace for you. Maybe you've been judgmental toward Christians. There's grace for you. Today is the day when we can either slam the door on that grace or we can walk through it. Today is the day. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, um, we, <laughs> we can't do this. We can't show grace, Jesus, like you do without you in us without your miracle work inside of us. And so we are asking for that to happen, Lord, that we can show grace like you did. Um, not that we're compromising about what sin is, but, but we're focusing on the person and not their sin. So, Lord, do that deep work in us. Let that, let that miracle happen in us, however you mean for it to happen, that we can show grace that the world so badly needs and that we need to. We pray in Jesus' name.